So, kind of, uh, I kind of been thinking that as we're going through this section, Revelation, you really we're trying to reach into different parts of the Bible and do two things. First of all, to notice that this theme of a new heaven and a new earth are not unique to the book of Revelation. I kind of want us all to recognize that, that uh, when you go back and you look at, when you look at the Old Testament or you look at some of Jesus's words uh, early as he's teaching, this, this whole idea of where, where do we go after we die? Well, we talk about heaven and we've talked about heaven in the church for so long, but we haven't talked a lot about what, is, or what does life really look like in eternity? Okay? And eternity is not lived in heaven. It's lived in bodies on a new earth with a new atmosphere and a new universe. And so you're kind of, you're kind of wanting to see that this theme goes all the way through the Bible. It's not unique to the book of Revelation. Second thing we're trying to do is just grab pieces of the puzzle. And that, that honestly is what it is. At the end of the day, there's no way that our physical, bound, broken human minds can fully comprehend what life on new earth is going to look like. We can't do it, okay? But you can grab hold of these little bits and pieces of a puzzle that I think kind of helps, kind of helps you see, oh, okay, that's, that's what life on new earth is going to look at. We've looked at a couple of passages, uh, one in Isaiah 65, where, where Isaiah is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Um, we went into 2 Peter 3 uh, last week and talked a little bit about, from Peter's perspective, this new earth, this new heaven. Uh, one of my favorites, 1 Corinthians 15, talking about what kind of bodies we'll have. And uh, off of that, I'm going to come to this, this last one that I want to look at with you. Um, what, what, do, what does life on new earth look like? Come to Matthew chapter 22, uh, where Jesus is, is being set up by the Sadducees who are bringing him a question about the resurrection. So Matthew 22, beginning verse 23. This is one of those scenes of the Bible that's easy to just picture in your mind. It starts off, this is that same day, that same day Sadducees came to him, and, and, and I kind of connect this, uh, just, just before this incident, um, the Pharisees are plotting against Jesus, okay? The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like each other, right? They, they had different opinions. They're kind of like the Lutherans and the Methodists. I mean, they just, they get a whole different way of looking at life. So um, the Pharisees have already tried their plot against Jesus, talking about who do, do we pay taxes to? Right? They want to trip, trip up Jesus. Well, now it's a, they, didn't, they didn't do it. They didn't do very well. So now the Sadducees are like, just get out of our way. We'll do it. You Pharisees can't come up with a good enough question to trick Jesus. Well, we're the Sadducees, and we're way smarter than you stinking Pharisees. So we've come up with a whopper of a question, and we're going to trap Jesus now. So they come walking up as though Jesus doesn't know, right? I mean, you can just see. When your kids come with that look on their face, you just know. You're like, uh-huh. I know it's coming. So you can just picture here, they come walking up and Jesus is like, uh-huh, I know it's going to happen here. So they come up to him and they say, they say hey, um, we've got a question for you, teacher. And it's, that's paradoxical. You know, they're kind of like, hey, teacher. You want to teach us? We've got a question for you. And they say, okay, here's the way it is. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother, okay? 
It's true, and it's not true. It's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Levitical marriage is uh, a part of the way that God took care of life uh, in the Israelite community. Okay? I always tell people, you, you know, when you read the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it puts you to sleep. You've got to have strong coffee. Um, because a lot of us forget what it actually is. It, it, it's, it, these are books that are defining how life is to take place in Israel. And when you look at Israel as a whole, it's, you don't have people that are, are poor. You don't have people that are, are left behind, not taken care of, including widows. If my wife dies, then the brother marries the wife, right, a Levitical marriage, and now he takes, takes care of the kids that are coming up. And so it's, it's true. What they're saying to Jesus is true, except for one thing. Notice the way that they say it. Moses says. It's a slap in the face. You don't see it initially when you look at it, but it's a slap in the face. We called you a teacher. Teacher. Our teacher is Moses. And we're going to tell you what Moses said. Moses said it this way. He says, and they now are quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25. All right, now, here's, here's where they get tricky, verse number 25. It says, now there were seven brothers. Seven brothers among us. The first married and he died. Having no children, he left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all died... After they all died, the woman died. Now remember, Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. So this is where their trick question comes in. So in the resurrection, of the seven, whose wife will she be because they all had her? Okay. So you, you know these guys have been up all night ordering Domino's pizza talking about this thing. We got we to gotta trip up Jesus. And they came up with this question. It's a pretty good one, right? You know, because how Jesus answers these questions, he's answering them publicly. All right? So this, this is not done like in a little, you know, sidebar situation. We've got you out in front of a crowd of people. We're going to trip you up, trick you, and make you answer in a way that people go, aha, see, that. That's where this guy is, is messed up, all right? Because technically, yeah, whose wife, whose wife would she be? Jesus kind of pushes all of that to the side. And his answer, uh, he really doesn't answer their question, uh, but he does. And he answers it in a way that kind of cuts through their foolishness. And I like, I like his answer. Verse 29 says this, but Jesus answered them, planaste, planaste. Um, how many of your English Bibles here say something like this? But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. You are in error, okay? I kind of like it better in its original. It says, but Jesus answered them and said, planaste. It's from the verb planao. And the literal meaning of the verb is, you are deceived. Okay? What, here's what Jesus is actually saying to them. You don't belong to me. You live in a deceived state. You currently belong to Satan. And your efforts are that of the devil. You're attempting to, to throw me off publicly, but you don't even belong to me. 
I like that. You are planaste, you are deceived. Because, and here he says it, you neither know the scriptures, and the verb here is oidas, so it's, it's this kind of no, but it's deeper. It's this kind of no, oidas. You, you do not know the scriptures, the grafate, nor do you know dumate, the power of God. What he's saying to them is you're unconverted. And in an unconverted state, you're asking foolish questions that do not regard what, even what the resurrection is. And you don't fool me. You're Sadducees. I knew it before you walked up to me. You don't even acknowledge the resurrection. You are children of the devil. That's who you are. That's what he's saying to them. And then he says something that kind of catches our eyes because we're, we're interested in knowing a little bit about, well, what about the resurrection? What happens to us? Here's what he says. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Okay? I underline that verse in my Bible because, um, again, even though my mind can't fully comprehend it, it helps a little bit picture what life on new earth is like. Okay? A angels are genderless. Okay? So you don't have male angels and female angels. You just have angels. Angels have inanimate bodies, if you will, spirit bodies, okay? Um, he's not referring to that. He's not saying in, on the new earth you're going to be um, genderless and have spirit bodies. No, because we've already established uh, here in 1 Corinthians 15 the idea that our bodies here uh, on new earth are going to be more like Jesus' body, right? They'll be physical, Okay, so will we get to eat eat broccoli and and uh, um, all that you know Brussels sprouts and all that good and high calorie food when we're on on New Earth? Yeah, but I'm sticking with the cream filled chocolate donuts and the pizza. The low, I'm going to eat the lower cal food. You know when I'm on New Earth, we can eat. You can eat. I mean, you can. You have feasts on on New Earth, right? But at the same time, Jesus's body could walk through a wall. Now, can our minds comprehend that? No, cannot comprehend that. But, but you have more of that kind of a body that's physical, spiritual in nature. Again, what does that look like? We don't know. It's one of those pieces of the puzzle. What he's referring to here, though, is our relationships on New Earth. All right, so a uh, big question that gets asked all the time is, well, when I... When I die and I go to heaven, will I know my husband or will I know my wife? Um, well, yeah, you'll, you'll know I'm your soul, all right? What's our relationship? Well, let, let's transfer that from heaven to new earth. Is our relationship husband and wife anymore? The answer is no. And um, what he's pointing to is, again, not that we have angel bodies, but we have angel relationships. So amongst the angels, you don't have, you don't have weddings. Okay. Now, there's a reason that our relationship changes on new earth from our current state. All right, And I think you're going to pick up the answer to that in the very next part of uh, what John shows us here in the Revelation. Uh, but I want you just to, ca to capture that is in the midst of this tricky time, what Jesus points to is he cuts right through their question and he says, 
know of your hypothetical question. You're just not getting it. You don't know me. You don't know the scriptures. You're unconverted. Here's the reality. In a converted state, we begin to learn something new about where we're going. We're going to a new earth, and on that new earth, our relationships will be very much like the angels. And then he goes on to say to them, in verse 31, as for the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was said to you by God? They came quoting Moses. He says, yeah, but haven't you read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Abraham. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay? And so he's taking their scriptures now that they would hold to as, as Sadducees, and he's circling this word, I am. And it's kind of funny because throughout this whole little exchange, you can see it, can't you? Seven. Whose number is it? Jesus' own number that they've chosen to try to trick him with. I am. Who is the great I am? Jesus is. And now he's going back into the Old Testament, and he says, you know what? If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob heard God say, I am your God, where are they now? Not dead, but alive. Because God is the God of the living and not the dead. There's a little wordplay going on there because what he's really saying to them is, you are dead. Spiritually dead. You may be walking around on this earth, but you're spiritually dead. That's who you are. And until you come to know me as Savior, then you'll remain in that dead state. To come to know me is to experience life and life forever with me in a resurrected state on new earth. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So kind of put that puzzle piece in with the rest of them. Where, what does new earth look like? I'm walking around on it. Uh, do I work on, do I do, I do work? Yes, okay. A lot of people go, well, work, work was as part of the curse. I'm like, no, it's not. The curse, the curse is your work will be without meaning. And it's, it's true, right? We, we get little tiny bits of meaning in what we try to do here on earth. But at the end of the day, when we die, we look back at all of it and we go, if I measured it, it's, there's not much to it, right? We can't find the meaning in it. Adam and Eve found their meaning relationally with Jesus in their work. So we, we work. Do we eat? Yes, that stuff right there. Highly locale. <laughs> very, very locale food on new earth, all right? So the answer is yes, we, we eat. Do we, get, do we have our same wife? No. Do you have your same husband? No. Do you know them? Yes. Why, why aren't we, why aren't we, yes, get that away from me, Satan. Way, way, way. <laughs> yeah. So why aren't we, this kind of disturbs, I've, I've actually had people in my office, they're like, this disturbs me. I want to be married to my husband. I want to be married to my wife when I'm in heaven. And uh, there's Mike, he's like, no, I, I don't, I don't. <laughs> you don't get a new one, Mike. All right. <laughs> now, this is going to sound crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're going to get there quick. <laughs> Woo, okay. All right. So here, here's the reason. You know, people go, well, why, why, did, why can't we be married in heaven? And here's my answer. And this is, this is just, this is kind of me just pushing the envelope when I say it this way. Well, because it would be adultery. 
It would be adultery for you to be married in heaven. Why? Okay. Go back to Revelation 21. Look at the very next words. We've started off. There's this, there's this new heaven and there's this new earth. Now go to verse number 20, 21, verse 2, and look at why there's no marriage. Here it is. It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay. Who are you married to on New Earth? God. That's who you're married to. Your relationship covenantally is with him. To one another, we are like the angels. We are servants of the one to whom we are married. Okay. Um, will we recognize, hey, we used to be married on earth? I think so. What it kind of goes to, in, in my mind, is, and so many people miss this, it goes to what I like to call the, the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage. Okay. Um, you know, we don't talk about this in the church nearly enough, but what, why is there marriage on earth? What, what is, why did God give it to us? Didn't have to. He could have put us here on earth and said, I'm going to have you be like the, like the, like the angels. Um, we go back to, to Genesis, and we see part of what's going on uh, when we find the first, the first marriage, would take, which takes place in the garden, right, is that God's created this, this being that he calls Ish, man, and he looks at Ish, and he says, of all the creatures that I've created, this one, this is not, it's not good. Why does he say it's not good? Well, um, what he's, what he's getting at is, is not that this, this man thing that he's created is, is broken, no, but this, this man thing is not complete, right? And, and complete in, in his relationship with me, God. And so he forms Isha, woman, and brings Adam and Eve together, and we have what we would describe as the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. They didn't have a wedding ceremony or anything like that. It's just it's two people who become one in the garden. What's its purpose? Okay. Um, in America, when I ask when I ask people that question, what, what do you think the purpose of marriage is? Why do we have it? Okay. You know, you'll get all kinds of different answers from well. You know, marriage is kind of two people get to help each other make it through the hard things in life. I'm like, yeah, okay. In marriage, we get to have, you know, an intimacy that you don't have in any other relationship. I'm like, yeah, that's true. But why do we have it? Okay. Um, the purpose of marriage that we don't talk enough about is, is very simply this. is God takes two people and puts them together for the purpose of each helping prepare one another for the marriage that's coming. Okay. How do I help you become the best you for that day that the groom comes for you, his bride? Spiritually speaking. Okay. So at the heart of marriage, very, very deep in its essence, is this idea that we are in a spiritual union together preparing for the union that will take place between ourselves and the one who is coming after us, our, our groom, and that's Jesus Christ. We were made for him, uh, by him, to spend eternity with him. And so as, as we go through marriage, um, 
if, if our marriages are not centered and grounded in, in a way that we're helping speak into each other spiritually, they're, they're, they're just a worldly marriage. Um, they're not accomplishing what God created them for. And um, one of the things that, that just disturbs, it kind of disturbs me, you know, from a pastoral standpoint. Uh, I mean, a, cu a couple will come in. Hey, we're going to get married. We're going to get married. Okay. Talk to me about how do you, how are you sharing life together spiritually? Well, we go to church. I'm like, no, no, I'm not talking about going to church. I'm talking about how do you speak into each other's lives spiritually? Do you, do you share some scripture together? Do you talk about that? Do you pray together? Do you, what, what do you do? No, we, we don't do that. Well, we're missing the whole purpose of marriage. How, how will you live a marriage that's not worldly if you're just acting like the world? And so um, I think that, that we ought to keep that in mind as, as Christians and we're bringing up kids and we're talking to our grandkids that you know you don't get married because I think that person you know looks a certain way or you know they've got a certain job you 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 know God brings you together into a union where where you're going to walk with another person in an intimate way not just physically uh, and not just emotionally but spiritually as, as more than anything else as you prepare each other for this this day that's going to come the day of the resurrection when our relationships will be wonderful we will we love each other absolutely uh, but they'll be different because I now have a new husband and my husband is I'm the bride and my husband is is Jesus on this new earth I function like an angel we are servants to him okay so when you start putting the picture together it's, it's interesting no wonder Jesus's first miracle was at a wedding no wonder he, he, you know, surprised everybody with all the miracles. You know, you put God on planet Earth, and you're like, okay, there's a lot of miracles you could do. You could raise some people from the dead. You could heal the blind. You could, of all those things, God says, oh no, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to turn water into wine at a wedding. Well, that doesn't make sense. You made wine for your first miracle? Yes. Why? Because I want people to know what the miracle is really about. It's about eternity. It's about the wedding. Are you ready for the wedding? Because I'm coming. I'm coming down the aisle. Are you ready for the wedding? And that's really what he's saying. Multiple times throughout his teaching, Jesus finds himself painting pictures of what? A marriage. And people going, hmm, wonder why he talks so much about marriage and weddings. Because there is one in your future. And it happens at the resurrection. When we see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's you. It's not a city anymore. It's not like uh, buildings. You are the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Prepared, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Don't miss those words either. I know that I as a preacher man get more excited about this than the average person. But... Um, how do you get ready for this wedding? Okay. Notice that both of these verbs, prepared and adorned, are in what tense? The passive tense. What does that mean? Is that you got prepared 
for this wedding and you got dressed up for, adorned for this wedding by the one who prepares and adorns you. That is by God himself. That's why we, we rest as a Lutheran church upon this theology that we are saved by grace alone through faith and not by our works. I, I can't get myself ready for this wedding. I can't. I can't. I can't adorn myself for it. I can try to make myself look good. And we do amongst each other, right? We want to look good. You can't look good to God because he sees your soul. The only one that prepares you and makes you right before him is guess who? Him. So he's prepared you. He's adorned you with the clothing of what? Of Jesus Christ. Gotten you ready. And now here comes, here comes the bride. That's us. Coming down from heaven, prepared, adorned for uh, her husband. I just love that picture that the revelation uh, gives us. Verse number three. Now John hears uh, again, we get this several times in the revelation, a loud voice, a loud voice from the throne. And uh, the, vo the voice now cries out, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Okay? Um, wow. Powerful, powerful, powerful language. So where is God in this new earth, new heaven thing? It's with us. Surprising? Some people would say, well, yeah, that, that sounds surprising. Shouldn't be. Why? When we go back to, to Genesis and we kind of listen carefully to what's going on, in chapter 3, where you have Adam and Eve and you have this snake that comes and, and planao deceives them and they eat of the fruit and the fall happens. The very next thing is they're ashamed, right? They hide themselves. And then what? And we heard him walking in the garden. All right? Was this the first time that he had walked in the garden? No. Right? It's not like, oh, what's that sound? I don't know. What do you think it is? I don't know. Oh, I think it's him. Him. Well, I didn't eat the thing. You ate the thing. No, you ate the thing. No, I ate the thing. Oh, there he is. No, it's not that. It's they hear him walking there. It's not a surprise. They don't go like, oh, my gosh, he's here. He's been there, right? He is dwelling amongst them. I, I personally have always loved this, this verb um, for to dwell. All right, and I'll just show you this. The verb for to dwell is, is the verb skenao. And uh, literally translated, it means to tent with someone. Okay? And what I like about that verb, a couple of things, is it shows up in other places in the Bible. In fact, it shows up quite, uh, quite frequently to describe our relationship with, with God. Uh, one of the first places it shows up, if, if you think about it, in the New Testament is in the book of John, in the Gospel, right? When it's talking about Jesus, he became flesh, Sarks, and he skenao, he dwelt amongst us. Has God dwelt here on earth before? Uh, hello, who is Jesus, right? He's walking around on his creation. So yes, he's dwelt amongst us. Will God look like Jesus on new earth? Um, I've always had people say to me, when you, when you think about the, the Trinity, which exceeds our human capacity to comprehend, Right, you think about um, this being that is not physical, right? He's not flesh and blood. He's God, right? So my dad used to say, "Oh, look, I always picture God as just pure energy, just pure energy." I'm like, "Well, 
Buddha did too. I mean, he that's how he kind of thought about, about, he didn't call him God. There was no personal God in Buddhism, but he'd say everything is just energy. The reality is God is spirit, right? And, and so at the same time, is God physical human being? Yes. Jesus is physical human being at the same time, fully spirit. We cannot comprehend that in any way. But that's who's walking around on earth. Will he look like Jesus? Could. I would not be surprised at all. That is, looks exactly like Jesus. He is skenao, tenting with us. Here's the other thing I love about that verb is, is it pictures, it gives a picture of intimacy. Okay. Um, in the Old Testament, in Moses' time, in Exodus 26, they had the tabernacle, right? And, and when, when God commanded Moses to build the tabernacle, he, he had him build a, a tent that would be carried around with Israel wherever they went, uh, reminding them that God is in your presence. He's dwelling here. You may not physically be able to see him now, but he's tabernacling or tenting uh, with you. There's, they're meant to be, <clears throat> through that tabernacle, a sense of what? Like this. Intimacy. Through what? Blood. Intimacy through blood sacrifice. And uh, now that the sacrifice is complete, now we have this beautiful picture of a God who, like he was in the garden, dwells with us in intimacy. When you go into a skanao, when you go into a tent with someone, then <clears throat> you get into that thing and you zip it closed, and you are just right there with this other person, the whole world disappears, right? And it's you and they. And it's the stories you stay up telling, and it's the, uh, the sounds that you listen to around you. There's an intimacy to it. And it's meant to be that. This, this picture that we're being given is saying, on new earth, you're married to God, you have relationships with one another, you serve him, and yet there's this intimacy with God that's like no other. All right? Um, where else do we see that intimacy? Well, in the actions now that are described by uh, John. Verse 4 says, here's, here's the kind of relationship you have with God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, as a, um, a grandpa, again, you know, I just, I love this image. Um, I love it when you just to watch how a mom uh, or a dad wipes away those tears, right? Our kids fall over. <laughs> you know, come to me. It's, it's okay. I wipe those tears away. There's an intimacy to it, right? There's that. No tears, right? Um, he goes on to say, death shall be no more. There's no tears like death. Um, there just are no tears like death. Emptiness, sense of loss. I can't bring this person back to me. Uh, there'll be no more pain, he says. No more mourning or crying. For these former things have all passed away. You know, in the garden, there wasn't death. Um, there was not a need to mourn or cry. Um, that intimate God is, is, is with you. Okay? When John is speaking these words, I'm going to ask you this question. Why, why should 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees, why should they have said to themselves, I think we've heard this before. Why should they have said that? These are scholars, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they know the Old Testament like no one else. Well, here's the reality. Have you, have you guys noticed this? When you read the book of Revelation, have you noticed that you're reading the whole Bible? You're going all over the Bible and just grabbing pieces of it. Just look at this board right now. First Peter, Isaiah, Corinthians, Matthew. Take a look at this. Isaiah 25. Go over to Isaiah 25. Just listen to these words and kind of put yourself back. Here's this rabbi that's walking around. He's been touching people. He says, you're blind. I'm going to make you see. He says, oh, you're lame. I'm going to make you walk. Um, who is this guy? The, well, the rabbis, the rabbis, the Sadducees, the Pharisees are threatened by him. Oh, my goodness. All these people are going and flocking to him. He must be an evil person. He's a charlatan. We'll prove him wrong. Why should they have said to themselves, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We've heard this before. Well, look at Isaiah 25. Look what it says. Um, Isaiah is speaking to Israel. He's speaking to them of what is going to happen to them. They're going to be taken into captivity and exile. It hasn't happened yet, and they don't believe them. They're like the Pharisees. But when it does happen, Isaiah's words become the most comforting words in the world to the people of Israel living in exile because they're a reminder that you're not going to be in exile forever. The words of Isaiah are meant to be what I call both and words. They both point to what physically happens here on earth for Israel, and they point forward to new earth, the end of the wilderness, and the beginning of the new and promised land. So kind of read it that way. Um, <clears throat> begins this way, oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. You've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never, ever be rebuilt. It's pointing forward to that time when God will, will bring the city that, that holds Israel captive to its knees. Verse 3, there, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. If you've been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. Can you hear Jesus on the hill? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the God. Blessed are the meek. Can you hear him? You've been a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat, for the breath of a ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in dry place. You subdue the, news of the noise of the foreigner as the heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast, rich with food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. He'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. Look at these words. He will swallow up death forever. Why should the Pharisees and Sadducees have said, Huh. He's talking about poor people being served, needy people being served, death being swallowed up forever. The reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, 
Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for. Let us be glad and rejoice with his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Moab shall be trampled in his place. He will spread out his hand in the midst of it. As a swimmer spreads his hand to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride and the high fortifications of his wall he will bring down, lay low to the, to the dust. Um, did you notice in verse number 8 what it says? The Lord God will swallow up death forever and will wipe away the tears from all faces. So already back in Isaiah's time, long before Jesus ever shows up, Isaiah is saying, Hey, you know what? You've got tears because you're going to be in exile, Israel. God will come wipe those tears away from you. He'll restore you. But he's also saying, but there's something even greater coming, a time when you will live on, on earth and you will have no more tears. Death itself will be swallowed up in victory. And so you, you have this very ironic, paradoxical situation where the very people who should know who Jesus is have missed it entirely. Flip over to, to verse chapter 35. Same book, Isaiah. So um, I'm just going to skip around just a little bit on here. But same kind of theme. He says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert will rejoice and bloom, like crocus. Bloom abundantly and rejoice with, with, with singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. Um, Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, made, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute sing for joy. Does that not shout Jesus Christ right there? The, the Sadducees and the Pharisees should be watching what Jesus is doing, going, look, the blind are seeing. The mute are speaking. The lame are walking. Who is this? The one who stills the storms has power over the universe. This is him. Okay. By the way, I think that uh, in the early apostolic period, when the Christians would go out into the, the temple and, uh, and speak to the Jews, this is the stuff that they would pull out. And they would say, don't miss it. This Jesus is the one who we've been waiting for. The, line, the blind see, the lame walk. Um, notice what he says. Go all the way over to verse number 10. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There shall be no more death and no more mourning. So you can hear it already back in uh, Isaiah's uh, writings that all along we've been pointing forward to this time when on new earth in this beautiful relationship with God this old order of life this broken world that we in the curse is removed and we have restoration in intimacy with God and in intimacy with, with, with one another <clears throat> the old things that have been uh, taken away um, let me do, make this one last point and then we'll come close and come back to it. Verse number five then kind of closes this out. He says, and he, he who was seated on the throne spoke, he said, behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Okay. Um, <clears throat> they kind of go together, this idea at the end of verse 4, that the former things have passed away, and I'm making things new. Significant is this verb. The one who is seated on the throne spoke. So in Hebrew, you would say it this way, Elohim Yomer, God spoke. And you should hear in those words, go all, rewind the tape all the way back to this period of time where God speaks and the world is created, right? How did we get here? Evolutions, oh, here's how we get, no, come on. How did we get here? God speaks and we have, we have matter. In fact, go back sometime and really study Genesis, and I mean really study it. God speaks and you have, you have formlessness and water. And it's almost, you know how, how kids will take a, uh, an iPad and it'll take components and rearrange them? That's what's happening in creation. Through the six days of creation, God speaks and you have waters and you have things that God starts to put into order over that six-day period of time. Yomer Elohim. In the Greek, the word that's used here, I think is a, is a perfect word. We'll close on this note. The word is the verb poio. Here's what I love about it. When God speaks, he speaks poio. What's our English word? Poio. What's our English term? Poetry. Poetry. When God speaks, he speaks poetry. You like poetry? Everything is in order. It rhymes. It goes together. And so that's what he's saying is when he speaks this new earth into being, it's poetry. Everything put right back into the order. Behold, I am speaking. I am making all things new. This new earth upon which you shall dwell. All right, let's close. Lord.